And uh, for our Thanksgiving sermon this uh, Lord's Day, this day where we have celebrated communion, we will be in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. I will begin the reading in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, just to get a little bit of the context for the sermon text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we begin the reading, though the sermon considers verses 24 and 25. Please give your attention now, once again, to the reading of God's holy word, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. These are the words of God. For he, even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God, we come to the word of the Good Shepherd. And we pray, Father, that the man who preaches would preach as a faithful under-shepherd of Christ. So we pray that the Spirit of the living God would be upon the preaching, that you would enable the minister to discharge his duties to God and neighbor faithfully. Father, we pray as well for the congregation that hears that they would be encouraged and exhorted to not leave the Lord's Supper behind them, but instead to constantly meditate on the grace they have received. O God, only you can do this by your Spirit. And so, Father, as we come to the text again, we pray that you would help us to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, even as I have prayed just now, We are often in the habit of not profiting from spiritual exercises, from the means of grace. We often leave the means of grace behind. We don't often meditate on the Word of God. We leave it behind us. We hear a sermon, and often what happens is that we leave what we hear behind, and we don't continue to meditate on the Word of God. And this is something we are grossly negligent with, with the sacrament. Uh, Often we will prepare, and that is good. But sometimes we don't remember what we have experienced in the prior observation of the Lord's Supper. We don't carry meditations of the means of grace forward in our lives. And so we find that we do not profit from the Lord's Supper as we ought. And many times this is the perverseness of the fallen man, even the Christian, is that we often want to replace those things that the Lord has given us, meditations, say, on the sacrament today, and we will try to replace those meditations that we ought to have with things that we ought not have, things like images of Christ, right? And he has given us the sacrament to picture himself in. Yes, it it is forbidden to portray our Savior. He is God in the flesh, but he knows our weakness, beloved. He knows that we need a sense of him physically, And he has given us something to picture him in, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He says, see, child of God, this is my body, 
See, child of God, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And I want you to understand because uh, we are prone to run to things that we ought not to run to. What a superior thing that is to say a painting of Jesus, which would not really portray him anyway. Because in the supper, what you just did, communicants, is by faith your fingers handled the Savior spiritually. Even touching a representation of his wounds in the broken bread. We drank spiritually what poured out of his wounds, his shed blood, didn't we? We had a sight and sense of the Savior by, by faith that is unparalleled the sight of glory. And the question we always have to ask ourselves is, why are we so quick to leave it behind us? Why is it that we don't remember? Why is it that tomorrow you are unlikely to think on what you have just received from the Lord, myself too? But if we would just meditate, continue to meditate on what we have received by faith, the sight of it, the sense of it, it would draw us to the truths of the Scripture that portend out of the Word of God glorious things, and we would find everlasting benefits. What is the sacrament? It is the Word of God made sensible to us by faith. Tonight, then, for our meditations, something that we hope we will carry into the week from communion to communion is we want to meditate on how the sacrament points to something particular, to Christ's wounds, to his stripes, both for our justification, but also what is so often missed, but Peter is so helpful here, for our sanctification. As he put it, to live as though we are dead to sin, Because that's what the sacrament preaches. You are dead to sin in the death of Christ. And you are to live unto righteousness, united to the Savior. The sacrament preaches that. And so, as they say, as the iron is hot, with the sacrament celebrated just hours ago, with it fresh, I pray, in your hearts and minds, with thanks to God, let us exercise the grace of it now and resolve to walk in holiness, ever remembering what we did. And what really Christ did, I should say. So our theme is this, that Christ's wounds preach death to sin and newness of life. And we'll consider that under two heads. First is to look on Christ's wounds for justification. The second is to look on Christ's wounds for sanctification. First, because we have probably forgotten, uh, because of our fallen flesh, uh, we need to first be reminded again that we look on the wounds of Christ for our justification. That theme arises out of the 24th verse, by whose stripes ye were healed. The word stripes there signifies wounds, boys and girls. By Christ's wounds ye were healed. That's a citation of Isaiah 53.5. You might remember it from our morning sermon text. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes or wounds, we are healed. But why? Why are we called to consider Christ's bodily wounds when the Bible says it was his soul that he offered to God? Isaiah 53.10 said, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Why are we called to think on the body of Christ? Well, his body in this text is a representation of the whole Christ of the whole Christ. It's a synecdoche. That's a, a grammatical thing, boys and girls. You might remember that from grammar class. It's a part that represents the whole, right? And his 
you think about this because out of his body, his blood comes and his blood is necessary to make propitiation for our sins. In other words, the suffering of the whole Christ is signified by his stripes, body and soul. For us as creatures also, we have to remember this and, and we, we know that we struggle in this way. It is easier for us to more readily grasp the suffering of his body, isn't it? When his disciples, right, uh, saw his bloody wounds on the cross and they saw him groaning for them, they saw the awful reality that Jesus Christ has come to be slain, the Lamb of God to be offered for the transgressors, that through his sufferings that they could see so vividly in his body that they are saved through faith. And so the wounds here signify the sufferings of the whole Christ believer, that both his body and soul were offered to God for you. Why? So that you can be saved body and soul. Every faculty of our soul needs salvation. Every fiber of our body needs salvation. And Christ suffered in both body and soul. His stripes then, his wounds, must draw our thoughts to the whole Christ and not just his body. And in the sacrament, you actually see and touch a figure or representation of his wounds, don't you? Like when that bread... When that bread is broken, right, and you take that piece out of the loaf, you are essentially, by faith, right, a representation. It's not literally his body, but you are sensing a representation of his wounds. You can't touch the torments of his soul with your senses. And so the Lord gives you this representation spiritually through bread and wine. The Holy Spirit brings Christ's sufferings to you through faith if you would meditate on that. And so having come to the supper this morning and we've seen the wounds of Christ afresh, we've seen him broken, we've seen his blood poured out of his wounds, so to speak, you are to take the sight and sense of it by faith and perceive the reality that it signifies and not just in the moment of administration, but every day. Draw yourself to Jesus when you need what his wounds have won for you. Remember the Lord's Supper. The sacrament continues day by day as a means of grace if you will do it. Just like if you will think on your baptism, it continues to be a means of grace. As we remember our sister being baptized, and we we said, uh, just as those waters are flowing externally over her body, I remember I am washed and I am cleansed by the Holy Spirit. And I need that when I feel unclean and my faith is in the Lord. I need to remember I am baptized. Now, there's a caution here. As we think about meditating on the wounds of Christ, our meditation comes on a meditation of the word of God that enables us to understand and interpret the sense of the sacrament. We are not going to become mystics, in other words, and start to come up with all kinds of different, sort of like the Catholic, Roman Catholic mystics often do, coming up with uh, flights of fancy. But the sacrament is interpreted by the word and our meditations on the sacrament come through the word of God. That said, what I want to encourage you before we go into that is on the days when you fall into sin, especially grievous sin believer, you need to remember the wounds of Jesus Christ. By his stripes you were healed. And the explanation comes in verse 24 earlier. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That is such a beautiful construct, friends. Oh, to meditate on that. Hear what his wounds signify for your salvation. What is your contribution to salvation? Our sins. 
That's all that is there, that is yours. Our sins. How are our sins healed? Jesus Christ of his own self bear our sins. Where and when? In his own body on the tree, the cross of Calvary. Why? For cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23 and Galatians 3.13. Jesus Christ in his own self, bear our sins in his own body being made a curse for us. And that's what his stripes, that's what his wounds signify, beloved. Jesus cursed, as you heard this morning, so that sinners can be blessed. When you need a reminder that you are saved from all your sin, that the guilt and curse of it has all gone away on the tree, will you remember the sacrament if you need help? Will you use the bread that was broken and the wine and take your soul's thoughts to the wounds of Jesus Christ. And as you consider a meditation upon his wounds, you know, what is quite striking about the post-resurrection account of Christ in John's gospel is it shows us, right, at least after the resurrection, Jesus retained his wounds when he appeared to his disciples. That's important. It was by his wounds that Thomas recognized his Lord in John 20. It was only when Thomas touched his wounds that he said, My Lord and my God. Isn't that astonishing? My Lord and my God hung from the tree to be wounded to save me the sinner. The sinner's identification of his Lord then, in other words, is heightened when he thinks on the wounds of Jesus Christ. It was by the wounds of Christ where Thomas identified his Savior. And so when I am crushed, When I'm crushed in the depths of my soul with my sin, I think on the wounds of Jesus Christ. I look upon them by faith and I mourn. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn. But I rejoice as well because I know why he was wounded. Why? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our what? Peace was upon him. And with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. I think on the wounds of Jesus Christ, and I say, yes, I am a transgressor, yes. But why was my Lord wounded? For my transgression and my healing. And I ask, do I have faith in this word? And if so, with his wounds, I am healed. And I praise God for it. Meditate on the wounds of Jesus Christ, often believer, daily as you can. And perhaps why Jesus retained his wounds after his resurrection was to show his dejected disciples, some of whom abandoned him, some denied him and hid. It was to affirm to them, by these, my wounds, you are healed of all your sin. Clearly, you think of Peter. The thought must have been seared into Peter's soul when he penned this text. Peter who denied the Lord three times. Peter remembers the wounds of Jesus and finds hope in what they signify. Does Jesus retain, this is perhaps a little conjectural, does does he retain his wounds in glory? Some say no. Some say that when he ascended, they were healed. I'm not so sure about that. I think as Spurgeon did, that they remain, Spurgeon put it this way, Christ's trophies. Uh, Wonderful way of thinking about that. It'll be a matter of our praise for eternity when we will look upon him whom we have pierced, and we will ever recall that our being in heaven is only due to his wounds, 
and not anything we have done ourselves. But you're not in heaven yet, believer. Now you especially need to know that you were healed. What tense did Peter write in? Past tense, isn't it? Past tense. By his stripes ye were healed. Christ procured all your healing. He cried, it is finished, as you heard this morning. Your healing is purchased and complete. In a sense, you are fully healed. There is no more condemnation for your sin, the Bible says. But is healing health? It's given to you bit by bit, day by day, as the Spirit uses the means of grace. What do we hear in 2 Corinthians 4.16? We faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. See, even though we might feel, right, and some of us, uh, especially at my age, you're starting to feel it a bit more that the outer man is perishing. I remember the day when I did not feel that so much. But I know now, and some of you know that more than I do, but our outer man is perishing, but he says, you are getting more healthy, believer. Your inward man is being renewed day by day. Why? Is it because you are renewing yourself? No, it's his grace that is renewing you. He is applying his healing that he purchased at the cross day by day until he says he completes the good work he has begun and takes you to glory. You must have faith in that. You must believe it. And you must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am with the apostle. The wounds of Jesus Christ signify that I have been healed. And the wounds, of course, show us that he had a true human nature. He cannot wound God divinity. Both body and soul in his human nature, the divine person, suffered in both. For you who suffer in this life, remember his wounds. They teach the sufferings of Christ for you. When you suffer, would you remember the Lord's Supper? Would you remember that you handled his wounds as Thomas did? And will you see the Savior's sympathy his sympathetic heart for your sufferings in them. When you suffer temptation to sin, right? You, you remember that my Savior suffered, suffered temptations from the devil. He endured the contradiction of sinners. And when you suffer in your body, his wounds show that he suffered for you bodily as well. He was lashed. He was nailed to the cross. He hungered. He thirsted. And so a meditation on the sacrament and his wounds in it show us that we are to ache to know him and the power of his resurrection and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3.10. I don't remember where I read this or heard this and maybe one of you know where it comes from. But I remember being taken by the thought and sadly I wasn't taken by the man who said it. But the believer tastes the love of Christ more acutely when they suffer. My Savior suffered. My Savior was wounded out of love for me. I fellowship with his sufferings and I have begun to taste the love of Christ in that. But also a meditation on the wounds of Christ should remind you of how awful sin is. It ought to deter you from sinning. The wounds of Christ, even when they give us assurance, never ever preaches to believers, I have a free pass to sin. The gouges on our Savior's back his pierced hands, his open sides, these terrible wounds and these stripes, they are the result of what? Your sin and my sin, believer. You need to remember the sight and taste of the sacrament that signify his wounds and let them show for you the terrible and awful, awful nature of sin. To show you how grotesque it is, malignant, it caused our precious Jesus to suffer. 
to remember the wounds of Christ in the sacrament should deter you from playing with sin. So when temptation comes and you need escape, then where should your meditation go? I should think on the sacrament, shouldn't I? I should think on the wounds of Jesus Christ. I should think of my body, which is broken for you, he said. Broken because of what? Your transgressions. And I flee temptation by saying, how can I commit this great evil against my Savior who was wounded for my sin? Remember his wounds and flee from sin and flee to his arms. Well, as we remember then our justification in all of that and our forgiveness in Christ through his wounds, let's consider our second heading now to look on Christ's wounds for your sanctification. Well, our text shows that not only is our justification connected to his stripes, but so too is our sanctification, which is our growth in holiness to be more obedient to Jesus to become more like Jesus in our thoughts and our actions, to have our character formed by him and to follow him, right? Sanctification is this way, and maybe this is helpful for you. It's been helpful to me as well as I I don't think of sanctification so abstractly. This verse is here in verse 25. It's very helpful. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. To think of sanctification as that little lamb that follows the shepherd. That's what it is. You know, we've all had perhaps disobedient animals and maybe we've had obedient animals. And what a wonderful thing it is for the animal that just follows along by the master's side. Don't need a leash, don't need anything. It just follows along. That's what holiness is like. Following the Lord day by day. Doesn't need us, not need to pull on our chain, to, so to speak, to follow him. Right? We take up our cross. We follow him. We deny ourselves. And that's a wonderful picture here. You were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the bishop and shepherd and bishop of your soul. And what does the Bible say about the good shepherd, right? In Luke 15, Jesus Christ sees you, sees you as a lamb gone astray, and he leaves the 99 to search you out in the wilderness of your sin to return you where? To his sheepfold. To his sheepfold. To return you to himself. The shepherd, bishop here means overseer of your soul. You need to praise God for that. Praise God for that. He carried you, as Isaiah says, in his bosom and carried you away from the wrath to come. But you have to ask the next question, right? We, we, we love that and we ought to always meditate on that, but the meditation doesn't end there. We say, did my good shepherd return me to the sheepfold so that I might go astray? No, God forbid. What do we sing of, right? We love Psalm 23, but what do we sing of? In Psalm 23, 3, he restoreth my soul. He what? Leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. Do you see that? Right? Sometimes we hyper-focus on the he restores my soul. He has given me a new heart. He's given me faith to believe in the gospel. But this leads to leading me in paths of righteousness. As your shepherd and overseer, you are meant to follow Christ from the heart, especially as you think on his wounds. When I think on his wounds, I say, what? My good shepherd, right? He didn't just come to find me. He said, I come to lay down my life. He has laid down my life, his life for me. And I ask, should I not follow such a shepherd as this? And has he not in the sacrament, not only signified laying down his life for me, but has also given me grace in the sacrament to do it? Has his death as we're looking here at this text, not destroyed the power of sin in my life. I am to look on his wounds and remember that. As I said, our Savior's stripes 
in this text. Remind us, salvation is not just about justification. We often miss the point of the gospel when we narrowly define it as justification. See, justification clears us of our guilt and gives us the righteousness of Christ, received entirely by faith alone in Christ alone. And what a glorious thing that is, a necessary thing for anybody to ever be saved. Otherwise, we would be damned for the penalty of our sin. But justification is not the totality of salvation, is it? Salvation also includes salvation. You think of this. And and the child of God who knows God, uh, they glory in this. Salvation is also salvation from the bondage and power of sin. It includes sanctification, living for righteousness. It includes glorification with glorified souls and resurrected bodies on the last great day. Justification is weighty and important. It is salvation's hinge, but it is not salvation's totality. When our Savior comes in Luke 1, 74-75, Zacharias said that He would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. Being delivered, why? To walk in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. And so in our text, verse 24 says that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. It shows us that sanctification is inseparably connected to justification. Always follows. To depend on Christ for justification then is a calling to live in view of it. How? The text says, how do you live in view of your justification? By seeing yourself as dead to sin and living unto righteousness. Not to be saved by this, but as the fruit of our salvation. The fruit of our union, as we've thought about this recently, with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. I don't know, and maybe this is something to correct in your soul, but what a wonderful truth this is. You are dead to sins. By the power of Christ, believer, by union with Christ, you are dead to sins. Before Christ converted you, you had no power over sin. None. The Bible says you had, it had mastery over you. But now, when the good shepherd touches your heart and and takes you from going astray, he applied his death to you, and he caused you to die to sin. He caused sin's dominion over you to be broken. He has laid his axe to the root of sin's tree, filling sin's power in you. The wounds of Jesus Christ, as they remind us of the death of Christ, reminds us that in the death of Christ is the death of sin to you. You have to remember that sin is dead to me. I am freed from sin's dominion. Before, though, what was I dead to? Ephesians 2.1 says, We were dead in trespasses and sins. Once we were dead in our sins and trespasses, not dead to sin, but the gospel comes, the grace of the Lord comes, and now praise the Lord, we are dead to sins. What a remarkable turnaround that is. We must live that way. Believer, you have to believe this. You have to ask for an increase of faith to believe it. We often walk in this life saying, even as believers, this sin or that sin has mastery over me. That is a lie. You are dead to sin. Christ has mastery over you as the shepherd and bishop of your soul. 
You give sin power. It does not have over you, believer. You walk. You walk as those ten spies did, walking into Canaan. Even though God Almighty has said, I will give you the land, they were afraid. And you are afraid of sin, though it has no power over you. When I fear sin will take hold of me, I deny what Jesus says. I know there's a right way to fear falling into sin. But when I fear that I, I cannot... I cannot get out of sin's dominion. I deny what Jesus says. He says, I am the shepherd and bishop of your soul, not sin. I am the shepherd and bishop of your soul. I died so that sin's power has died over you, and that is the truth of God's word. This Bible, oh, this word, it gives such hope to sinners. It gives such hope to sinners who struggle with their sin. We need that hope. Because our mind is so twisted sometimes. And we don't believe what the word says. But Paul helps us understand better in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I'll read this to you. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, speaking of Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Why? That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You are freed from sin's dominion if you are in Jesus Christ. And meditating on the wounds of Jesus Christ ought to bring that to you. What does the Bible say? It says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is transformative is not just the mind knowing the facts of the word, but the word is enriched when it is meditated upon night and day, as in Psalm 1 verse 2. So many will tell me, and I know this personally for my own heart, but so many will say, uh, when, when we bring some of the truths of the word out, you'll say, um, I know this truth, pastor, but it just does not seem to affect me. It, it doesn't seem as if this thing is true in me. And I ask then, how often are you meditating on the truth that you say you know? You know, meditation is a way to fuel and give fire to the word of God and the truths of the word. What did, uh, what did David say in Psalm 39, verse 3? When, while I was musing, the fire burned. While I was musing, the fire burned. You see, you can't just uh, memorize these truths. You have to think on it. You have to think on it. You need to remind your own soul, this is true. I am dead to sin. What is it that I am giving sin mastery over me for? And I need to meditate on it day and night, right? Isn't that what Psalm 1 says? There are certain things, beloved, that you struggle with, truths in the Word of God. And I have to ask, are you meditating on those particular things that you need to have knowledge of night and day, day and night? If you say you struggle with a sort of sin, well, you need to meditate on the wounds of Christ. You need to think on what the Bible says about being dead to sin and living unto righteousness. And you have to see hope uh, kindled in your heart as you do that. But if you're not spending time doing that, I don't suppose you will have much victory over these things. Meditate on the word and meditate on the sacrament. And this does not mean, of course, and this is where we struggle sometimes, it does not mean that we are completely rid of sin in this life and that if we are not, we are unsaved. In Romans 7, the apostle after chapter 6 cries, O wretched man that I am, he still wrestled with sin. But where does he find freedom? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
His meditation takes him to Jesus Christ, that in the death of Christ, he has crucified this body of death. And so, by faith, when you are tempted to sin, remember this promise, believer. It is God's truth, and you are not not allowed to doubt it. It is the truth of the word. He that is dead is freed from sin. Remember the last time you came to the supper, which is today for most of you, and see in it freedom from sin. See in the sacrament, the body broken, the breaking of sin for the believer. Freedom from sin in Jesus. And may your soul be transformed as your mind is renewed by that truth. If you need help, cry out to the Lord. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. These are things that the Lord knows we struggle. You need to say, sin has no dominion over me. It's not because I'm speaking something into existence. It's because the Word says it. The Word says it. Sin's power has died over me in the death of Jesus Christ. I am crucified with Christ, is the refrain, isn't it, in the Bible? Common theme in the Apostle's life. With a single stroke from God's sword in Christ's death was the death of sin to me. Freed not only from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. And these are the things that are preached by the wounds of Jesus Christ. And believer, redeemed by Jesus, having tasted and seen the Lord is good this morning. Oh, you are called to press on by the grace of the Lord and to mortify or put to death your sin. Calvin was so helpful in this. uh, He puts it so memorably. If death destroys all the actions of life, we who have died to sin ought to cease from those actions which it exercised during its life. We are dead to sin. Should we not cease from those actions which sin exercised when it was alive in us? Yes. The inspired apostle, Calvin not being inspired, the inspired apostle says it this way in Romans 6, 9 through 12. These are glorious words. Oh, maybe meditate on Romans 6 some more if you struggle. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he say? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. You have to reckon yourself. See, there's meditation under that, isn't there? You have to reckon yourself dead to sin. It doesn't come just by hearing that word, right? It also comes by thinking on that word, by applying that word. I am dead to sin. I am not to let sin reign in my mortal body. I am not to obey it. It has no right over me. The death of Jesus Christ took away its rights, its claims, and its power over me. And I now live for God. You are to put away your sin, beloved. You are not to cherish it. Remember, it is a cruel master, always trying to sneak itself onto the throne of your heart. It is a usurper of Christ's throne. It has no place there, and it has no power there. Do not let it intrude. It only has the power you give it. And Christ has given you in the gospel the grace and power to not obey it. You must believe it. We must live in light of the grace of Christ. This is how Paul speaks in Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but grace, but under grace. You see, the gospel not only has grace given to forgive, but grace given to sanctify you. 
The gospel is not grace given for forgiveness. And then now you start to walk on your own power. It's like, like he, he cleans the slate and he says, well, go ahead now, child of God, and I will just go back to heaven. No, he says, even though he is in heaven, he says, I give you the spirit of the Lord. I give you grace to sanctify you. The gospel is grace for forgiveness, grace for sanctification, grace for adoption, grace for glorification, grace, 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 all of it. And in the supper, you saw the grace of the Lord. And so when you think on the wounds of Jesus Christ, think not only of grace to forgive, but also grace to die to sin in the death of Christ. Believer, in your union with Jesus Christ, the era of sin's dominion over you is over. It's over. And you must live like that. Do not, do not fall into the trap and the hopelessness of thinking you cannot overcome sin. That is to deny in some way the death of Jesus Christ. What an awful thing that would be. Jesus died so that by his power and his death and his death, he would kill sin's dominion over you. And you need to remember that when you meditate on the sacrament in his wounds, that in the death of Christ, oh, can you say it? In the death of Christ is the death of sin to me. So often indwelling sin puts twisted thoughts and fears in us. It puts the thoughts, I cannot resist, sin's power, I'm hopeless, it's too much for me. And oh, ye of little faith, I count myself in that number of times, so but let us believe the word of Christ, especially this day when he has met us at the table. Sin has dominion over us. We who believe are dead to sin. But also, believer, the new life Christ has given you is not just to put sin to death, is it? Verse 24 again that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. Should live unto righteousness. Now, if putting sin to death is called mortification, that's its theological term, this is the opposite of that, which is called vivification, living unto righteousness. And a lot of the reason that we find, right, that uh, we don't have power in our life over sin is because we, we, we hyper-focus on, on mortification and we completely neglect living unto righteousness. But what does the Lord Jesus say? When, when one devil is removed from your heart, here comes a whole cavalcade coming in to fill that spot. But he says, you must live unto righteousness. You are to live unto righteousness, vivification. And that's the life of Jesus Christ, after all. You know, if on the cross we were put to death, united to his resurrection, we are raised to newness of life with a life just like his. Let me read Romans 6, 9 through 13 sheds more light on this. This would be a, a good text to take away from you for, from the, the, uh, the service today and meditate on this Lord's Day. Uh, Romans 6, 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death had no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. We've heard this. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but what? Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Dead to sin in the death of Christ, alive to God now through Christ's resurrection and your members which were once devoted to sin are called now instruments of righteousness. We can live holy and righteous lives, but we often live the inverse of the truth. 
We often believe we have no power over sin and we have no power for holiness, but the very opposite is true, believer. Christ gave you mastery over sin and he gave you the power to live holy lives. Will we obey it? This truth. Believe it. When you need a remembrance of this and you need grace to help in time of need, what shall you do? By faith, remember the sacrament this morning and beg for a continuance of it in your life. You say, I see, I remember the broken body and shed blood of the Savior who died to put to death my sin. And I know as I have communed with him, he is alive and he is in heaven. I know then for fact that I am dead to sin and alive to righteousness as he is alive. He died once to sin. I am dead. He lives now, ever lives. And so I live and I am to live in righteousness. And by the grace of God given to me, I can do it. There's no room for despair, child of God. What did we read in Hebrews? That Christ's throne, right? Christ's throne is both a throne of mercy and grace. Mercy to cleanse us of our sins and grace in our time of need to live righteously. So what is it to live for righteousness then? It is to live a life like Christ lived, isn't it? You know, if you think about Christ's life, it wasn't so much defined by thou shalt not, but it was a life defined by thou shalt, isn't it? Uh, That's the life defined by the new man in Ephesians 4. A life not defined by thou shalt not steal, but as Ephesians 4.27 says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. You see, the new man's life is not defined by the fact that he never steals from someone. But his new life, the life of Christ, the Christly life, is defined by work and giving to the needy. That's the life of the new man. It's not a life defined by thou shalt not lie, but rather, as Ephesians 4.25 says, speak every man truth with his neighbor. You see, of course, I'm not, you have to understand the emphasis is what I'm saying. Of course, our life must be defined by thou shalt not lie. But it should be better known for speaking truth with his neighbor. A life not defined by thou shalt not neighbor, but as Ephesians 4.32 says, what? Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. It does you no good to go before God and say, well, you know, I have not murdered anyone. He's going to ask, have you been kind? Have you been tender-hearted? Have you forgiven one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you? That's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and so on. It's not a life defined by, right, as you come back to the Savior's teaching, this life is not defined by thou shalt have no other gods before me so much, as uh, rather as Deuteronomy 6.5, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That's how Jesus Christ himself summarized the commandment. And so we could do that with every command. You can review the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments to understand what being dead to sin and living unto righteousness looks like. Believer, Jesus' life that you are united to is defined by this living for righteousness. You know, yes, he never committed a, a sin, right? A sin of commission. But what we most admire of the Lord are what? When we think on the Lord Jesus Christ, are we not always thinking of his actions of love for God and love for neighbor? And that's what defines Jesus Christ to us. We never go around saying, you know what? Yeah, Jesus never murdered someone. But we remember how he blessed. 
We remember how he loved. We remember how he gave himself. That's the new life. That's what living for righteousness is. Is that not how the Lord himself frames the law of God? I'll say it again, positively, righteously. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And what is the second like it? Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 20, uh, 30 to 31. By his stripes we are healed, and we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, loving God and loving neighbor, doing good deeds. This is how Titus 2.14 speaks of Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for what? Zealous of good works. There are some who think that the gospel is just sort of truncated there at being saved from judgment. And to press anything else is legalism. How can that be? I do not know. I suppose it would be legalism if we say this all contributes to our salvation. That would be legalism. It would be legalism to lay down laws not found in the word of God. It would be legalism if we said, do this in your flesh apart from Christ. But Titus 2.14 says it very plainly that the fruit of our salvation is a zeal, a love, a desire for good works. Should that not be the case today as we have celebrated the sacrament together? To see that in his wounds, which brought us healing, also comes the reality that we are dead to sin and alive, living for righteousness. That we ought not play with the very thing that put our Savior to death. That we should live a life conformed to him by union with him. This is meant to be our longing and our desire, zealous of good works, is what Titus 2.14 said. You heard in the preparatory sermon, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. First John 3, 2-3. You remember that Christ was meant to be to us the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. To the born-again heart, he is glorious, altogether lovely. And we want to live like Christ. We want to be like Christ. He has put that in our heart if we are born again. 1 John 2, 6, he that saith he abideth in him, right? We, we, oh, we this morning to meditate on Isaiah 53, right? And to see that he was numbered among the transgressors and see our union with Christ in that. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Well, our time is up, but our meditation of the sacrament ought to be taken with you into the week, child of God. Take this meditation on the sacrament, showing us the wounds of Christ when you need a remembrance that by faith in his blood, that blood that poured out of his wounds, you are forgiven and you are cleansed of all sin. Take our meditation, meditation on the sacrament, which shows us the wounds of Christ when you need remembrance that by his death, I am freed from sin's dominion and able to live unto righteousness, united to his resurrection and newness of life. Uh, You... One of the reasons why the elements are so particular in the Lord's Supper is that not only do you handle them with your your uh, your fingers, but you also should have a lingering sense of them by taste, and you should be able to bring to mind your your sight, your your touch, and even your taste of the Savior by faith. Of course, these are representations; these are emblems. You're not physically eating on His body and blood, but these are things that are given to help your meditations 
on the wounds of Jesus Christ, and able to live unto righteousness, then I think, united to his resurrection and newness of life. And unbeliever, if you are here, how I wish I could make you taste and see that the Lord is good. But I can't. That has to be the Spirit's work in you. But I wish I could make you taste and see what we who believe had tasted and seen today. Would you see, I pray that the Spirit is at work here, would you take this Christ, so precious, wounded for sinners, even the chief, would you lay hold of him and find your healing there? Receive him by faith, repent of your sin, and return to the chief shepherd. If you will, see by his wounds that you are healed, and leave this place praising God. May we all leave this place giving glory to God for wounding, God wounding our precious Savior, wounding the most beloved person in love for us, that we would look upon the wounds of Jesus and say with adoration as Thomas did, my Lord and my God, and to follow Christ, the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Amen. May God bless this meditation of his word. Let us rise for prayer, if able. O Lord, our God, we plead with you. Father, let us not leave, let us not leave the sacrament behind us. Father, would you put in our hearts a remembrance of these things that we have seen today, seen out of the word of God, and also signified for us, represented in the Lord's Supper. Father, we have seen that you are abundantly gracious, far more than we deserve. We have seen the love of Christ. Oh, how these things surpass all understanding, Father. Father, we say, though, that we are prone like the dog to return to its vomit. We are prone, Father, to go back to the filth and muck of our sin when we have seen such glorious things today. Father, these things, they are, they are flickering flames in our heart. Oh, would you blow on them by your Spirit? Would you cause these things to become a mighty flame? that will keep us going, living for God, living for righteousness, being counted dead to sin, and ever adoring and praising that it was not us who has done any of this, but all of it is grace for grace given to us from Jesus Christ, our Lord, received by the Spirit of the Lord and sent in love from the Father. We thank you and bless you now. In Jesus' name, amen.